You can open your Bible to the book of Esther. We're beginning a new series, summer series in the book of Esther this afternoon. And uh, if you're not familiar with where that is, it's in the Old Testament. You got to make your way through a little ways, just past Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you get to Job, you've gone just a little bit too far. And now we've entitled the series, the sub kind of title for the series behind me there is The God Who Is There. And I think as we look around the world, we look around our culture, we look at different events and different seasons of life, it often appears that wickedness is winning. It seems that evil has the upper hand. We look at the culture wars and the the battles that are going on with morality in our world. We look at the, the media messaging. We look at Hollywood and entertainment, and we see the ideologies, the that secular, humanistic, hedonistic thinking that seems to be so prevalent in our world. And sometimes we step back and, and we feel like, man, is there, is there any chance for us, for Christians, for truth, for righteousness? And this touches more than just kind of outside of our lives. It touches us very personally and individually. Oftentimes, we look at our own lives. We look at our own sin we look at our constant falling and failing. We look at the broken relationships around us, maybe some of us experiencing them in our own lives. We look at disease and illness that we get struck with from time to time. We look at pain and poverty that creeps up even in our own lives. And we look at the reality of death that every one of us faces. And maybe there are times in our lives where we step back and we look at all the brokenness and mess and disaster that is in this world, and we step back and say, how could a good God allow such things? And isn't that exactly what an ardent atheist or even, you know, maybe not so ardent atheists so willing to throw out as a defense for why there is no God? Look at all the evil. Look at all the brokenness. Look at all the garbage in this world. There's no way that a good God would allow this. Therefore, there is no such thing as a good God. There is no such thing as God at all. And it's not just our atheists who, who feel this way. I think even the people of God can feel this way. Just read through the Psalms. There are times when the pressures and pain in this world, it, it's so immense, it, it's so intense, that, that even the greatest Christian can sometimes feel their heart saying, God, where are you? How could you let this happen to me? And you see, these are the kind of questions provoked by the book of Esther. As we live in what I will call the empire of this world, the city of man, the kingdom of darkness, the question that we can ask is, is God really there? Esther is such a unique book in the Bible. It's actually 
one of only two books in the Bible, this and Song of Songs, that do not mention the name of God at all. There are no direct references to God. There are no prayers to God. And if you're reading at a cursory level, it appears that God is actually not there. He's nowhere in the book of Esther, which has actually made this book incredibly controversial throughout the history of the church. It was the last book to be included in the canon of Scripture, to be included to be divine authoritative truth. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wished that this book wasn't in the Bible. John Calvin, the other reformer, he ignored it altogether. He never wrote a commentary on it, just pretended like it didn't exist. It irritated him and agitated him. And it's, it's more than just the fact that God isn't mentioned. You see, this book is kind of uncomfortable. And it reads in many ways, we, we think of it as this really, really pretty fairy tale and this, this girl rising to power and saving the nation. But, but the heroes and heroines in this story are actually marred by sin as well. They take place in some things that we would view as unbelievable for a Christian. I mean, sin is, is evident in this book all over the place. Evil is rampant. Like I mentioned, God's name isn't present in this book. There's, there's no temple. Think about this from a Jewish perspective, from the people of God. There's no temple. There's no priest. There's no sacrifice. There's no miracles. There seems to be no God. And this takes place, this story, in a foreign land under a foreign king where God's people are subjected to incredibly ungodly, tyrannical, governmental practices. So, you see, when everything around you makes it feel like God is not there, Esther points you to the God who is there. All throughout this book, though God's name is not mentioned, His fingerprints are everywhere. And that's what we're going to see as we study through this book this summer. And this book is so practical. It's so relevant. It's so helpful to God's people today, to us, to me and to you, who are living, listen, who are living like Esther in a time of exile, who are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land, who are, who are looking forward to a city, the city of God, a city that's a paradise And so we can resonate with Esther in so many ways, and we need to start this story by first reading a portion of it and then pulling it apart. So let's begin at verse 1. We're just going to look at the first chapter today. I'm going to read the first nine verses first. It says this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when a king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of 
porphyrer, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Hasuerus. We're going to look at how God's people can live in the empire of the world. And what I want us to see first is that we need to actually start by looking at the empire of the world itself. We need to understand the world that we live in. We need to understand what this empire looks like, where we have been situated. And Esther gives us a good glimpse of the world, generally speaking, but at a specific point in time in history. And these first nine verses, if you didn't capture this or grab this, They're intended to impress us with the greatness of this king and his kingdom. And the author begins in verse 1 by telling us that this is a real king in a real place at a real point in time. In other words, he expects us to read this as history. This is a true story, a historical reality. But who exactly is this king then, this great king? Well, his name is Ahasuerus. His Greek name, some Bibles translate the Greek version of his name, is Xerxes. He reigned during the time and lived during the time of 486 to about 465 B.C. Now, a little bit of context is helpful to get a sense of what's really going on here. This takes place 50 years after the Jews have been released from Babylon and Persia. They were exiled there by God because of their disobedience And 50 years after they have been released from Babylon and Persia, they're sent back there to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. They're sent back to their land. Both Ezra and Nehemiah tell us actually that many went back to do this, but many did not. Many of those who were allowed to go home, they actually stayed where they were. Many stayed in Persia. You can kind of imagine it would be an easy thing to stay there. This is where they had built their life. It was comfortable. They enjoyed all the benefits and blessings of living in the capital of Persia. I mean, who wants to go back to a busted up land when you can live in the comforts of the capital? Esther and her family did not go back. They didn't go back to the land that God had given to their people. Instead, they stayed in Persia. We know this, the first return to the land took place under Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., the second by Ezra in 458 B.C., and this book takes place in between those two returns, from 468 to 478. So here's why I'm telling you this. What we have in this book takes place over a 10-year span, and time is an important element to understanding this story. In fact, the first few chapters take place over a number of years, and then in the middle of this book, we see some events that take place over a number of days, and then at the end of the book, again, in a number of years. But what are we supposed to know about this king exactly? That's the question. Well, the the narrator tells us that this king, Ahasuerus, he reigned over this vast Persian empire which spread from India to Ethiopia. That's how big this kingdom is. Over, look at this, over 127 provinces. 
That's what he had control over. The, the narrator is telling us that this is the king of the known world. That's what he wants you to understand. He is, at this time, the world superpower in a way that our world has never known or experienced and cannot even comprehend. The kind of power and control, the vastness of his empire is so great, it's hard to kind of put in perspective in our day and age. He's sitting on his royal throne in Susa. This is his winter palace. The, the, the royal throne, the, the citadels, they moved around depending on the season. So you can imagine this is his, his winter palace, which points again to the vast wealth that this man had. When you have a winter palace, not just a summer palace or a spring palace, it's a pretty big deal. This citadel is a royal fortress, and it's sitting, you can kind of envision, about 120 feet above everyone and everything else. The walls are thick, and it has a magnificent palace, and, and there he sits on his royal throne above everything and everyone. Look at his power and significance. He is majestic in all of his glory. That's the imagery that is presented to us in these first nine verses. Historians uh, actually tell us that he had nicknamed himself. This was a common practice amongst the kings in the ancient Near East, and he had given himself uh, around 15 nicknames. He thought pretty highly of himself. Let me tell you some of the nicknames that he gave to himself. You're going to enjoy this. The Great King, the King of Kings, Oof. the Pharaoh of Egypt, the Greatest King. It's just like every day he just wake up and like, I'm the Great King. The next day, and I'm the greatest king. I'm the awesome king. I'm the king of kings. Just in case you forgot how important he was, he wanted to make sure everybody knew. He's the king of the world. Move over, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and one day, this, this all-powerful monarch, he decides he's going to throw a feast and it's not just any feast. It's not like a backyard barbecue. It's not even like a little wedding feast where maybe you've got family that are staying over for a couple of days and, you know, the festivities are enjoyed for, for a little while. He throws a feast for 180 days. That's six months. And then after that, he throws another feast for seven more days. He throws this great feast for all of his officials and servants. And again, it's really hard to kind of put this in perspective, the amount of people that would have been involved um, in this feast. I mean, he had a, a kind of a royal guard that consisted of 14,000 soldiers, trained soldiers. His personal bodyguard, I like this, by the way, this is a little tidbit, it has nothing to do with the story, but, but it's really interesting just historically. His, his kind of armed guard, his secret service, um, they had a nickname. They were called the Immortals. How about that? But this feast, it lasts forever, and you can imagine how much money would have been involved and how much food, the cost of this would have been just through the roof. It's so hard to process the amount of wealth this would have required, but that's the whole point. Look at how awesome this guy is. Look at how powerful he is. Look at his success. Look at his wealth. There's nobody that compares to him. And then you, you kind of read through. Don't you love this? You, you read through in verse 6, they, they describe a bit of the, you know, the, the arrangement and the 
furniture. There was white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords. These guys got gold and silver couches. That doesn't even sound comfortable. I mean, this is lavish and over the top, and, 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 it's, and it's an open bar. <laughs> Did you catch that? It's an open bar. It, isn't it interesting? You, you see here in verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. There, there's so many different vessels he wanted to put on display. It's like everybody had their own unique cup. There are thousands of them. And it says the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. He had to make an edict to tell people they could drink. It's, it's control. And his edict was there is no compulsion. Now, listen, historically, here's the reason why. Because people could only drink in the presence of the king when the king himself took a drink, okay? So, you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, there's no rules. Everybody drinks as much as they want, whenever they want. This is going to be a party like nobody has ever seen before. And, and all you just, when you read through this, all you should be thinking is rich, 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 rich. You can't fathom this guy's wealth. I mean, this is like Elon Musk on steroids, okay? When I was growing up, they had this show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous where they would go into people's houses. I'm dating myself here. Some of you kids, you just don't know. But, but you know, they'd go into people's houses, and they'd show them around these crazy houses. And these people would just have stuff. They didn't even know, that, they didn't even know half the stuff they owned. They just buy stuff, and it's just laying around. And it's stuff that costs millions and millions of dollars just kind of sitting there. They're like, well, what's this? Well, I don't know. It's just nice. Just didn't, have, didn't know where else to spend my money. So I bought a whole bunch of stuff I don't need. Or maybe, maybe give you a more contemporary example of lifestyles of the rich and famous. This is, this, is, this is the new movie, Crazy Rich Persians. And he's the star. He's the star. And, and, and the author, the narrator wants you to imagine the scene. He's swimming in power and wealth, and he lavishes it upon whoever he chooses. And you see, for many in the world, this sounds like heaven. That's the empire of our world. This is what life is all about. This world, you see, it offers a portrait of the good life that is about power and possessions and pleasure, and the kind of success is, is measured in these kind of quantifiable ways by what you own and how impressive you are. But in reality, listen, it's just the opposite. This is not a picture of the good life according to the Word of God. This is a picture of the lostness of man. This is all they have. <laughs> That's the point. This is, this is what they got. This is what they're living for. And when they finally got it, guess what? It's not enough. And it's empty. This is man trying to play God. And you see, the empire of this world, it appears satisfying, but its satisfaction is shallow, and in the end, it's empty. And, and many of us have experienced this. We've, we've sought the things of this world. We've pursued it. We've desired it. We have loved it. We've tried to grasp for it. And, and many of us have even found it. And when we've got it, what we've found is this. It's, it's not what I thought it was going to be. It doesn't provide what it promised to. I'm still broken. I'm still unsatisfied. I, I still lack peace and rest for my soul. I still feel as empty as I ever have. 
And yet, here's, here's the irony, and yet, here's the crazy part of this. Many of us know this theologically, intellectually, and even experientially, and yet we're still doing it. We're running after the world. We're convincing ourselves that, that the Word of God's not true, that, that maybe this time, maybe just a little more, a little different, may, maybe, maybe that will satisfy the deepest longings and cravings of my soul. But you see, satisfaction in this world and from this world seems so elusive because it is. We are never meant to be satisfied by this world. And as the story moves on, we actually get a glimpse behind the curtain, and instead of longing for, we should be laughing at the empire of this world. That's the second point. As we look at this world, we need to see how foolish it is, how laughable it is. And we're introduced at the end of verse 9 there to a new character, Queen Vashti. She is off throwing her own party. Now, here's one of the things that's helpful to note. Uh, normally, the, the queen and the king would be having the meals together. They would be dining together and throwing these feasts together. So, there's an indication here already in the text that there's trouble in paradise. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahaman, Biztha, Herbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, and seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, look at this, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. I mean, here he is, he's, he's, he's had a little bit too much to drink, he's with all the officials, all the people of importance, he's with all his drinking buddies, and he has this brilliant idea, I know, somebody go get the queen, so, I, so she can come in here and prance around and everybody can see how beautiful she is, and, and you know, this is the epitome of the trophy wife, right here. He, he wants to hold her up as a trophy, look, look what I have, look what I own. It's more of that pomp glory and splendor. Some scholars, I think, reach a little bit too far, but some actually believe that he is implying that she comes only wearing the crown. The point either way is this, she was going to be oogled as an object, objectified, the king thinks this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, he believes he deserves it. He, after all, is the king of kings, the greatest king on earth. He's drunk and brings her out to put her on display, but look at verse 12. Here's the, the humor being introduced, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. This, this is a huge insult and embarrassment. He beckons her to come. He sends this whole tribe of people to go and get her, and she refuses. She just stubbornly says no, and now he looks like a chump in front of all his buddies. And now, I, I, we've, if you're a parent, you've experienced something like this, okay? You know what it's like to kind of, especially if you've, you know, you think you're doing a good job parenting, you know, you've read all the parenting books, 
You know, you got Paul Tripp down pat. Man, you sleep trained your kids to death, and like, we got the best kids in the world. And then you're out in public somewhere. You, parents, you know where I'm going with this, right, parents? You're out, you've taught, you had that talk with those kids. You, you, if you disobey, I mean, you, you reflect me. Okay? If, 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 if you act crazy, people are going to think I'm crazy, so you don't act crazy when we go in here. And then you're out, and you know, I don't know, maybe you're at a friend's house, and little Johnny, little, little Johnny's over there playing, and you're like, okay, Johnny, it's, it's time to go, buddy, it's time to go home. And he looks you dead in the eyes with all the confidence in the world and says, no. And you as the parent, you're like, oh, he's so cute, isn't he? He, yeah, he, doesn't, he doesn't normally do this. This is so weird. And, and you're like, okay, Johnny. And you get in the car and inside, like, Johnny, when we get home, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know that feeling, though, right? Maybe you're in the grocery store and your kid's throwing a fit. You know, you know that feeling of losing control of somebody who's standing in utter defiance to you. How dare they do that to you? How dare they humiliate and embarrass you? Well, that's, that's King Ahasuerus in this moment, and he is furious, but we're supposed to kind of laugh at this. I mean, imagine this. This is the, this is the scene that's being painted by, by the author here. Imagine you're this impressive king who rules and reigns over the greatest kingdom mankind has ever known, and you cannot even control your own wife. That's kind of the picture. He's embarrassed, so look what he does. And this is, by the way, it's supposed to demonstrate uh, that this is not a man who is powerful, but a man who is weak. Look at what he does. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the, ne- the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meresh, Marsena, and Memuken, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus that he delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memuken said to the in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This is crazy. He seeks the counsel. Listen, his wife said no to coming into his presence, and so he seeks the counsel of seven princes. This is not the sign of a healthy marriage. But here's the thing. Up to this point, this man looks like God to the people. Now we see that even though he has the largest walk-in closet known to man, the emperor actually has no clothes. He's not God. He's hardly even a king. And Esther 1 actually presents Ahasuerus as this, this impotent ruler. There's this contrast that, that the author is showing here between appearance and reality. He is simultaneously powerful and weak. And it satirizes the, the empire. 
mocking its claim to power and authority. You see, satire takes the, the object of fear, the authority, and then makes fun of it, showing its ridiculous side. And so, in a sense, this book is actually meant to make us laugh. And for oppressed and powerless people, satire has actually historically been a key weapon, cutting the, the overhyped splendor of the empire down to size putting things in perspective. And the book of Esther shows that the great empire is not run by some fearsome giants that are unstoppable, but instead by petty bureaucrats. In fact, history tells us that the people who read this letter, the Jews who would have read this letter in the early days of receiving it, they would have known something um, very significant in reading this. They would have known that King Ahasuerus would actually suffer four major military defeats at the hands of the Greeks and watch almost all of his wealth and power evaporate in a, num- in a matter of four years. One author says it like this, the ruling class of Persia is depicted not so much as the magnific- magnificent seven, but more like Ahasuerus and the seven dwarfs. And again, he's not happy. Look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. Here's the, the, the edict that was presented to the king. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This, this might be the craziest overreaction in the history of marriage. Okay, here's what you do. You depose her and you replace her. You, you issue this royal decree to all people. And what you're supposed to read is, is like, this is pathetic. <laughs> this is so incredibly pathetic. It shows that he is a weak man, not a powerful man. The escalation in this is unbelievable. He moves this to DEFCON 1 in a matter of, of moments. It went from a marital spat to an empire-wide problem. This, is now how, this now, in their minds, has cosmic implications. And, and I love what he, what he says, right? If the empire cannot command the wills of wives, chaos and order is going to go viral. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is the guy's argument. This, if we don't stamp this out now, all of our wives, all the wives in the empire, every wife from India to Kush will follow Vashti's example. Take care of this now. So this executive order is presented to the king, it will be valid for all time and in every place, and Vashti will be forbidden to enter the king's presence, which is only a touch ironic since that's the very thing she wanted in the first place. But don't miss this. This is a massive punishment. It is harsh. But it is also setting the stage for another queen. Verse 21 tells us that this advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memuken proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So the communication department gets together, the postal service is mobilized, 
They send out these messages in every language through every person across the 127 provinces. I mean, you got to see how crazy this would have been. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, you know, all of a sudden, this, this poor little couple is sitting there having a nice meal for dinner, and they just, you know, and, and it's, they open the door, and it's the MREP, the Marital Roles Enforcement Police. This poor little couple in India or, or in Kush, they're sitting there, and you know, you can imagine that the, the conversation, uh, excuse me, uh, there's been some uh, women trouble in the palace. So we're here to make sure that your wife is doing exactly what you tell her to. Uh, can you just confirm this, please? We actually have this new app that you must download and use every day to inform us on the status of your relationship. This is absurd. It's insane. But that's the point. It's laughable. The the empire of this world, they think they have all this power. They think they have all this control. But really, when you look at what they do with the power that they have, oftentimes, it's a joke. (laughs) It's insane. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And it's self-promoting. And it's dismissive of God. And it made me think of Psalm 2, verse 4. It talks about the nations that rage against God. In Psalm 2, verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And so should we. It's possible to respect people in positions of power, but to laugh at the idea that they have absolute power. They are not in control the way they think they are, and neither are we. Listen, this is the application for you. Neither are you. But as we laugh, we understand that we are also called to live. And the story of Esther is the story of those who are living in this kind of a situation, in this kind of a world empire. And we're going to look at a lot of ways we're called to live in this world empire, but I want to lastly and finally just ask this question, how are we to be living in the empire of the world? And I want to give you just three Three principles to live by here. Let's make some practical application to us. The first principle is this. True happiness can never be found in the world. True happiness can never be found in the world. This is a message that we all need to hear, but this is a message that our culture and our, our, our day and age, that we need to hear this so much. All your wealth and glory, listen, will fade and will never bring true happiness. Everything you own, everything you have owned or will own, it will eventually rust out, fade away. It will never last. So why would you spend your whole life pursuing it? It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have possessions. We say this often around here, right? It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong for money to have you. Jesus said it like this, you can't serve two gods. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in possessions. You'll serve one and hate the other. That's, that's the reality. Money makes a poor God, but, but more than anything, it makes you an enemy of the one true God if you're not careful. Paul said to Timothy that the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil And one of the things that we need to constantly reaffirm in our own hearts 
is that money and possessions, they can't satisfy our deepest longings. And by the way, you don't have to have a lot of money to love money. Just a little more, just a little better. If I just, if I could just get that next car, if I could just redo my house the exact way I've been wanting it for for years, if I could just get another zero on the end of my paycheck, if my bank account and my, you know, all all of my investments would bring me this amount of money, then I'll finally be successful or, or finally be satisfied, I'll finally be where I need to be, everything will be good. If I just get just a little bit more, that's, that's the lie of our culture. And that's what the world around you wants you to believe, but you will never find true joy and satisfaction and happiness in the things you can acquire in this life. This world simply wasn't designed to provide for the deepest longings of your soul. And and many of you maybe have experienced this. The more you have oftentimes, the more empty you are. You can have everything and realize that it really doesn't mean anything For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? So let me ask you, do you love money and use people? Or do you use money and love people? If you have money, great. It's not bad. Be careful. But but good for you. Now use it. I mean, enjoy it. You can enjoy it, but use it. Use it for kingdom purposes. Everything you have is a gift from God. Use it to serve God and to serve others. Use it to advance the kingdom. Use it to bless those in need. This man had everything, but what you need to see from this first chapter is that he actually had nothing. Don't be that man or woman. It's like Ecclesiastes, right? All, you know, Solomon wrote, wrote this. All, you can have everything. Even Solomon did. Everything, all money, all power. You can have all possessions. You can have, have every good experience you could possibly imagine. But he says everything, all of it is vanity. It's like a vapor. It, it's just, it disappears into nothing. It's like chasing the wind. The empire of the world wants to make us its slave. It wants to assimilate us into its way of thinking. It offers us glittering prizes for compliance to its ways, a successful life according to its own definitions. Have you been enticed and trapped? Flee from these things to the kingdom that is solid and substantial, the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to establish. Learn to laugh at the emptiness of the empire's priorities and edicts. Come to Christ by faith and rest in His provision of forgiveness and life, thanking Him for His gift of Himself for us on the cross. Live according to His edicts in which true wisdom and joy are found. Second principle, even when it seems like God's not there, He's there. This is really the theme of Esther. Yes, the name of God is not mentioned anywhere, but God is present all over this letter through His providence and His power. Listen, the people of God do not believe in coincidence. We believe in divine providence. We believe that God is actually sovereign over all things, that He is indeed directing all things according to the counsel of His will. 
God's at work everywhere in this letter, and God's at work everywhere in our lives, but very often we don't see Him. So often, God's hand is hidden from our view, and the author of Esther is giving us this picture of what life often feels like, but every part of this narrative, you have to see God's hand is just carefully orchestrating every event. Vashti wasn't there at the feast, and that was on purpose. That was God's plan. She didn't come when she was called. That was a part of God's plan. The the counsel that was given to King Ahasuerus was bad counsel that got rid of the queen. That was a part of God's plan. It was paving the way for God to bring up this young woman by the name of Esther, Esther, this orphan girl who would be used by God to save the people of God. Everything is under the divine control of God. He is at work in every part of this story And as in everyday life, listen, God's intervention is everywhere visible in the book of Esther, even though His presence is concealed. Listen, you need to hear this. You need to hear this, okay? Your life is not some big jumbled mess of pieces that make no sense. It's not like like your life is this, this puzzle that's just been dumped but, 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 you know, a conglomeration of a bunch of different puzzles that are just kind of mixed in, and now, now you're looking at it going, like, nothing seems to fit. It's not what your life is like. God has a glorious picture and story that He is piecing together for His glory and for your good. And Esther shows us how God brings the pieces together to make this glorious picture, even when there's no visible sign When you feel like saying, God, where are you? God, how could you allow this? God, are you really there? God is saying, I'm here. I'm good. I'm working all things according to the counsel of my will. I'm doing it, as Romans 8 says, for the good of those who are called according to my purpose. God's power and providence are evident in every area of our lives. Your relationship with God, listen cannot be driven by your emotions. It cannot be driven and controlled by your feelings. Your circumstances don't dictate the truth of God's Word. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so, if you're in this season where you just feel like this, like, God, where are you? God, where are you? Listen, the answer for you is not to pull back, not, not, to, not to push away. That's what so many people do. They just, like, find God. If, if you're not, if you're not, if I can't feel you, if it doesn't seem like, if, if life's not going the way I planned, then forget it, God. I'm just going to do my, I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to walk my own way. Don't do that. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. Say, God, I believe you're still here, even when it feels like you're not. God, I, I know your word is true even though it feels, it feels like things are not going my way. God, I believe what you say in your word is true, that you will never leave me or forsake me, that you are good and you do good. I believe and I will walk by faith and not by sight. Preach that to your heart. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Lastly, we need to see that there is only one King of Kings. The book of Esther repeatedly invites us to compare and contrast the kingdom of God and the empire of the world. And when we contrast these two kingdoms and kings, we're being called to see that there is only one true king of kings, and his name is not Ahasuerus, it is Jesus Christ. He is 
not just the king of 127 provinces, he is the king over the entire universe. And there is no comparison. That's what this book is telling us. When all the kings of this world have come and gone, listen, our God, our King Jesus Christ reigns forevermore. When all the earthly empires and governments have folded like a house of cards, God's rule and reign and government will last forever. There are things in our lives that look like they are worthy of worship, powerful and successful people. But this is a reminder that the the best of men are men at best, and there is only one man worthy of all honor, all worship, and all praise, and his name is Jesus. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Is that who you worship today? Is He your true King to whom your heart is fully committed?